This chapter 22, verse 16 through um, through verse uh, 9 of chapter 23. There was some question about whether to take it through verse 13. Uh, anyways, I don't think that matters. Uh, 22, 16 through not, uh, chapter 23, verse 9, uh, which rounds off the discussion we began last time. This is, in essence, part two of what was part one last week. Uh, The laws, you notice, are of the same nature. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay uh, the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly uh, destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. You shall, uh, if you afflict them in any way, and they cry it all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be uh, like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And if it be that when he cries to me, I uh, will hear, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me, and you shall be holy men to me. And you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Neither uh, shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. And you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt." Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge in some sense that this is the kind of text in which one might get bogged down, uh, but which is nonetheless your word. And if carefully studied and applied to the church, which is able to bear as much fruit as any other. And so we ask you, O God, that through the preaching of the word, what perhaps seems to be a tedious legal statement of the law would come to us in living form. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Again, uh, the setting which we have here is Israel having received the Ten Commandments, standing at the foot of the mountain, terrified, asking for it to stop. 
And, uh, and then Moses going back up the mountain, entering into the darkness. And the Lord meets with him there and he gives him an applied um, exposition of the Ten Commandments, which he just spoke. And uh, the, the commandments which he is here expounding upon in the verses which we considered, which composed or comprised roughly two chapters, are the seventh, eighth and ninth commandments. And so, again, uh, what we are considering is the civil sphere the sphere in which man-to-man interactions occur on a daily basis. Uh, they are civil or social laws, and uh, if, if we were inclined at all to speak of uh, social justice, uh, it would be here that we would find Scripture speaking of such matters, justice which works itself out in the social or societal sphere, man-to-man. But having said that, I would immediately add, as we discover here, the religious element injects itself very strongly. Uh, certainly in the second uh, part of what we considered. And, uh, and and it is the two standing side by side and then blending together, as we will see, that, uh, that make up what was Israel's theocratic existence. Now, as we're dealing with uh, issues of justice on the social plane, also on the religious plane, but especially on the social plane, once again, uh, I will make a point of stressing that uh, the justice which is held forth here, uh, the justice of the just man in a just society, found himself uh, here in this case in redemptive history in a theocracy. Nevertheless, we have a picture of what true justice looks like runs very con- counter to the modern views of social justice that are gaining so much currency today and especially in the church. That's the only reason I'm taking any trouble to counter them, because it's becoming very prevalent in the church, uh, the GA of the PCA, which just happened, was the most attended it had ever been. And it was precisely because of this issue. And so it's something that we ought to address since it's gaining currency. And this is, as I say, the passage which addresses it. It's at least one of many. Now, I want to break this up the way I did last time, simply by looking at the specific provisions and just enumerating them, offering a few comments, but then devoting the majority of the time to the general equity of the law. That's what uh, our confession says. I was interested to see Matthew Henry using that language as well. We are interested to know primarily what such laws uh, tell us about justice today. In other words, what principles can we extract? Well, looking at the laws themselves, uh, first of all, we have the specific provision. And uh, the first four uh, can go together in a class, chapter 21, verses 33 through 36, laws which concern the loss of property. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, laws regarding theft. Uh, and, and there we have the Eighth Commandment. Very interestingly, we find there the castle doctrine stated, the Lord saying, the intruder comes in at night, you may slay him and be uh, not guilty of his blood. Though, interestingly, and I'll come back to this, he says, if you slay him at night then you will be guilty of, I mean, in the day, then you will be guilty of his blood. So there we have, I know many of you are interested in this doctrine, the castle doctrine, there's the biblical statement, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 22, within the context of the intruder, the thief who comes in to rob you, when you may kill him, when you may not. Third, uh, chapter 22, verses 5 and 6, you have, similar to the first point at the end of chapter 21, laws regarding damaging another man's field or property. And then fourth, 22, verses 7 through 15, laws with regard to trusts or loans. What happens when you borrow a man's property and then you lose it or it's stolen or something like that? If you were to look at all of those verses together, 
Uh, and I, I just made a point of underlining this uh, in pencil. The thing that stands out, and, and when we get to the principles, I want to highlight this, but it's restitution. Restitution happens again and again and again. The word comes out. Restitution, he shall pay double, he shall make restitution, and so on. He shall surely make it good. Verse 14. There's the sense of what happens if, uh, or what the Lord is stressing. If, if, if uh, something is lost, then you are to make it right under these conditions. All right. So at this point, that there's an important break at verse, uh, verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 22. It is the religious element that suddenly becomes prominent. Here, as Kyle and Dillich say, the law differs from what precedes uh, in as much as they make demands upon Israel on the ground of its election to be the holy nation of Jehovah, which go beyond the sphere of, of natural right, not only prohibiting every inversion of the natural order of things, but requiring the manifestation of love to the infirm and needy out of regard to Jehovah. When they say prohibiting every inversion of the natural order, that's standard justice. But it goes beyond when it requires the manifestation of love to the infirm and needy out of regard for Jehovah. There's also specific provisions with regard to Jehovah himself. And so we see the religious aspect injected. Chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, laws regarding marriage and chastity, the seventh commandment. What happens when a man seduces a young woman? Uh, that was not his fiance or, or uh, betrothed. Laws regarding witchcraft, you shall surely put the witch to death. Verse 18, verse 19, laws regarding bestiality. Laws regarding idolatry, verse 20. You see, that's where we really get the sense of the theocracy. Idolatry was a capital offense. It wouldn't be today. You have laws against oppression in verses 21 through 27. Uh, one instance of that, 25 through 27, laws against extortion and lending to the poor. You shouldn't take advantage of the poor, he's saying. You shouldn't uh, make gain off of their need. Laws upholding lawful authority, verse 28. I want to read that, some of the key verses. You shall not revile God, nor curse the ruler of your people. Paul quotes that in the New Testament. So that just gives you a sense already of how these laws are still in application, even under the new covenant. Uh, when the high priest uh, struck him, you remember, in the book of Acts. Laws regarding offering first fruits to God, verses 29 and 30. And then you have a general law of holiness, and you shall be holy men to me, verse 31. Again, we notice the civil laws requ- uh, included very strongly the religious element. But then... Uh, In the third section, I think uh, this, in many ways, is the most helpful. The rights of others have been stated in what we considered last time, the judgments or the rights, uh, in verse or chapter 21. These are the judgments you shall set before them, and there the rights of people were set forth. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 9, we have laws which forbid wronging another by denying his basic rights, especially... Uh, and seemingly in a court of law. And it's here, especially in these nine verses, that we get a sense of what justice looks like, especially when a wrong has occurred. So it tells us, let's see, one, two, three, four, five ways 
that uh, we might pervert justice, especially in a court of law. The first way is through lying, verses 1 and 7. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. The witness, obviously, in a court of law. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. Verse 7. Justice is perverted through lying. And it's here that the universal principle of justice is laid down, you noticed, in verse 7. That the wicked will not be justified. They won't be pardoned or acquitted in a court of law. And you notice that God states this in the first person. He says, I will not justify the wicked. He doesn't say, you shall not, but I will not. That's the Lord speaking. And so that's a reminder that in the context of the theocracy, but also I think we could say in every context that the justice that we are concerned to maintain is the justice of a holy God himself. And his holiness is seen in his unwillingness to justify the wicked, along with the implied thought that it would be equally wrong to condemn the innocent. Upon this thought, the very idea of justice is maintained and established. And indeed, it is just such a thing that occurs when a false report occurs, when someone lies about someone else uh, in the context of a crime being committed. The innocent and the righteous are killed while the, while the wicked are justified. That is an inversion and a perversion of justice. If you're wondering, I will not justify the wicked. I, I, I do want to save that for the end of the sermon, but I will come back to that thought. The second way that justice is perverted is by being swept up by the multitude. Verse two. Uh, And certainly we all have the sense as Americans going back to the founding, uh, the, the founders of the country warning against mob rule, mob mentality. We're seeing the very thing being worked out in our day. That is the sort of thing that mitigates against justice. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, the Lord says. Don't get swept up to the crowd. Is there anything that is more injurious to justice, especially on a societal level, than the mob, than a concern for group approval, rather than simply what is right? Again, what God is seeking to maintain are the rights of the people. Number three, through partiality, especially toward the poor, either by showing favoritism or contempt. And you notice both are possible. Verse 3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. In other words, you shall not favor him just because he's poor. Neither shall you show show contempt just because he's poor. You shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in his dispute. He does not gain an advantage nor favor because of his status. Justice is perverted, the Lord is saying, when a man's disadvantage either makes us blind to his sin, verse 3, or makes us blind to his innocence, verse 6. And this also applies to the stranger, verse 9. And you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Number four, justice might be perverted because the person is your enemy and you hate him. And because, quite frankly, even though he's not in the wrong, you want to see him suffer. The Lord is saying that's wrong. And in many ways, this is verses four and five. This is the real test of justice. How do you feel about your neighbor's property? How do you feel about his ox? And so on. Will you do what is right, even though you hate the man? 
or though it's not in your best interest to do so, maybe it will harm you because this man is your opponent in business. Or through bribes, number five, verse eight, you shall not take you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. And so in those five ways, justice is perverted. Now, I want to draw up the equity, general equity of such laws. And we've said a great deal. Let me say, for all that I'm about to say, or I read a great deal, the Lord is saying a great deal, and I have a great deal to say, yet I'm realizing two or three points occurred to me just in reading it that I wanted to stress, and I, I'm not going to do that today. If there's something you, you were hoping I would cover, uh, like the Lord hearing the cry of the poor, I'm not, I'm not actually going to cover that today. There's a few other points like that uh, But this will be stressed so frequently throughout uh, the the unfolding of the theocracy from this point on that we will have ample time to consider any truths that we did not consider this evening, as well as consider again many that we have. The first point I want to make concerning the general equity is principles or general principles which have universal application, things which are always true if justice is to be maintained. And there are six uh, points which uh, fall under this point. And the first is, We notice in what the Lord is saying, especially in those nine verses we just considered, that justice is fragile. In other words, justice is something that's easily perverted, it's easily overturned, it's easily inverted, and so on. And so if there is to be justice, that's something you have to realize. That in a context of sinful people, that uh, the sinners will be seeking to gain advantage over one another. There will be lying, there will be false witnessing, and there will be theft. And so forth. If ever there is to be justice among a a righteous people, they must see how easily it is lost and how carefully it must be safeguarded. That's really the spirit in which the Lord is, is laying down all of these provisions. Number two, we find the importance of seeking and maintaining the truth. Truth as as regards to justice, which is critically important for us to grasp today, because so much of the left's agenda is built upon a false narrative. In other words, upon untruth or falsehood, a false sense in particular of injustice against which they assert the need for radical measures to remedy injustice. But uh, one of the things I've been reading Bodie Bauckham's book uh, on this very thing, it's uh, Biblical Fault Lines. One of the things he says is that before you ever evaluate, and this is what the Lord is saying as well, the, the claim to remedy injustice, before you even look at their claims, you have to look at the evidence that they're, they're citing. Is what they are saying true? It's the first thing you have to ask when talking about justice. And so often what you will discover immediately, which makes their arguments evaporate and vanish, is that their claims are obviously not true. But the point is, very generally speaking, you can only have a just outcome based upon the truth. There's no other way to arrive at justice than through the truth and based upon the truth. As soon as you believe or base your position upon a lie, However virtuous the position you think you are taking may seem, it's not a just one. And the outcome will not be a just one. Justice requires truth, a radical commitment to the truth. Even those truths which we find inconvenient and and, and offensive. Every time truth is perverted, justice is lost. Every time. 
Or another way that we could put this, uh, speaking in terms of what our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a need, the Lord is saying, for simple honesty. And this is something that we Christian people should have no difficulty accepting, that we are committed to telling the truth and speaking the truth, not exaggerating our claims and so forth. Being honest, even if we're in the wrong. The third thing we see is personal responsibility. Again, we're looking at universal principles which have universal application in every setting, theocracy or not. And so personal responsibilities, a a, a commitment to doing what is right by my neighbor, or even, as we saw, my neighbor might be my enemy. But I'm, I'm doing what is right, not because there's any personal incentive. It might actually harm me financially or in some other way, but simply because it is right. You remember what Paul says, children, obey your parents, for this is right. That's the only reason we should do the right thing, or at least that's reason enough. Put another way, in terms of the bribe, you cannot buy a just outcome. Cannot be bought with money. That's why bribes are ruled out. That's also why when a wrong is done, you notice this as well, even by accident or carelessness or negligence, it's still my responsibility to make it right. To offer restitution according to the circumstances and the injury done. Personal responsibility. That's what the Lord is stressing. And so the ethics of the law, if I were to speak of it in terms of personal ethics, are not those of expedience. I'm not doing what is convenient or best in my estimation, solely that which is right. Again, the just man is not one who does what is expedient. He does what is right. He knows it's always wrong to wrong his neighbor, even if he gains some advantage in doing so. Number four, justice is radically impartial. Any form of favoritism is the opposite of justice on a societal level. Strict justice has no favorites. That's why uh, the famous image of Lady Justice has her blindfolded as she's holding up uh, the scale. Her concern is justice, not who was involved. Uh, From the standpoint of justice, it doesn't matter. But again, as, as we saw, I stressed this earlier, let me stress it again. It's interesting to see how the law specifies how this cuts both ways. Again, the thought of favoritism. It's, of course, true that you can pursue injustice against a man because of your prejudice against him. He's poor or he's an alien or whatever. And so you think, or he's your enemy, so you think uh, he ought to be punished simply for those reasons, whether he's guilty of a crime or not. But it's equally true God is stressing. This is something the social uh, gospel of social justice needs to hear. It's equally true that you can allow the fact that he's poor or whatever blind you do his sin or his crime. It's the same sin, the Lord says. It's the same exact perversion of justice, only in opposite form. It's favoritism. Number five, justice requires a careful examination of the facts and even of the motives. You do not have one law for every circumstance. That's why the legal code is so elaborate here. There are certain uh, factors we discover which aggravate a given crime, such as motive, for instance. Others which mitigate one's responsibility for a certain outcome, such as the fact uh, that he wasn't driven by malice. Maybe he was just negligent or even perhaps that it was out of his control. 
And in that case, there is no punishment we discover. The law ought to take all this into account if the outcome is to be truly just. In one case, restitution is required. In another, it is not. How can we tell? Only by a careful consideration of the facts. Sometimes a wrong could not have been avoided. And so it's wrong to punish anyone. Sometimes it could. And the Lord says, uh, then, how does he put it again? You shall surely make it good. But in the other case, you see, he says, there is no crime, there is no punishment. Or, going back to the castle doctrine, he says, while it's allowable to kill the intruder at night, it is not during the day. And why is that? Well, it's because the circumstances differ vastly. And we discover here that the castle doctrine is not an absolute right. There are times when it is wrong to slay the intruder. That's what the Bible says. And so just laws take all such considerations into account as do just proceedings in a courtroom. The final thing I'll say under this first heading, again, general principles with a universal application that we notice throughout this is that a just law is a reasonable one. It's easy to see why it's just. And you see this in the reasons that God assigns to his laws. He appeals to the motives and he appeals even to the hearts of the people. He says, I want you to look out for the stranger. Don't you remember that just a little while ago you were strangers in the land of Egypt? He reminds them that he will hear the cry. In other words, he's assigning reasons to the law. And so we see that a just man will be able to give his reason. One which satisfies both the judge and his own conscience. But we also see that God deals with us as reasonable beings. He doesn't just say... Uh, What we parents sometimes say, and that is do it because I said so. If that's what the Lord says, that should be enough. But he is uh, far kinder and more condescending. And I mean that in a good way. He condescends to our level. He meets us where we are and he offers us reasons. He makes us see how reasonable such a service really is and how unreasonable, conversely, it would be to disobey such laws, to have a personal ethic, which was, in essence, unjust. Then as a second point concerning the general equity, we notice from uh, now what verse was that verse 28, which, as I said, Paul quotes in the presence of the high priest, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people that justice depends on the lawful use of authority by those in power, just as on the other hand, it requires a lawful recognition and submission to that power by those who are under that authority. You need both. You can't just have just rulers. You have to have a just people if you want a just society. And that requires a lawful exercise of authority and a lawful recognition of lawful authority. And that's something that you find not only in the Old Testament, but which is stressed in the New Testament as well. That is, again, something that spans across Scripture. There is a constant stress on authority if justice is to be done. And that justice is... Uh, is is impossible in a setting where there is no authority. And so the point here is that we see that God requires this of us, that we not curse the ruler of the people, just as he tells us not to curse the Lord, tying the two together, the authority of the two together. To reject lawful authority, he says, to embrace a rebellious and revolutionary ethic, especially in the name of justice or social justice, And that is exactly what's happening today, by the way. 
To do that is to invert the true order of things and it is to make justice impossible. Justice is only possible, God says, when true lawful authority is held in honor. The man who hates rulers and who curses them is in reality cursing the God who gave them such authority. Which is why most revolutions, whether the communist revolutions or the French revolution, are atheistic in their outlook. Uh, If you study any amount of history, you'll see that immediately. Any ethic that promotes the brotherhood of man, the equality of all, uh, as those two revolutions did, while at the same time seeking to tear down the structures of authority that God has put in place, again, as those two revolutions did, will bear the sad fruit of injustice. And history has been a powerful teacher of this lesson. To reject God as the source of true authority in any nation and among any people is to embrace chaos and sin and untold injustice and suffering. And the vast majority of those today who are advocating for social justice are atheistic in their outlook. That isn't the kind of thing the church can redeem. It is irredeemable. And we ought to counter it and oppose it. Number three, this is a point which I want to touch upon, but then unfold in later sermons. This is one of the great themes that we notice uh, in the giving of the law, and that is the contours of the theocracy of Israel. And this is also where all the debate comes in. And at times, it isn't altogether clear which laws have abiding relevance. There have been some laws which I stress. This is something which applies today. You shouldn't curse a rule of your people. We find that in Paul's mouth. And then we find in the very next verse, you have to give the the first fruits. We know that doesn't apply today. And so some do and some don't. But ultimately, it is seeing Israel as a theocracy that lends the most clarity to such questions. As we see not only the nature of the theocracy itself, but the function of the law in Israel's theocracy. And my basic point is that the contours are seen in the seamless blending of the civil and religious laws, the way civic life reflected both at the same time. You don't have two sets of laws. We do. And sometimes we divide them in the reading of Scripture. But in Scripture, in the Old Testament, they simply stand side by side and they're interwoven. You have duty to God and duty to man. Uh, Just... Just as you have in the Ten Commandments. You don't have two laws, but one set of laws in which we find both. And we find here the civil magistrate showing a concern to uphold both. And to to punish he who transgressed either. He wasn't just to punish uh, the one who was guilty of a social crime, but also of a religious crime. But what we notice in this, and surely this must be obvious, and this is something that will become increasingly obvious as we work our way through this extended legal code. And that is her life as a nation, Israel, took on a decidedly strong legal character. Law was the thing that dominated in Israel's theocracy intentionally by design. The legal character, that's a quote from Voss, by the way. And how are we to account for this, the legal character of the life of Israel, when that's not the character of the church? Well, as I say, this is something that we will have ample opportunity to explore in sermons to come. But for now, I want to read three quotes from Voss, who very helpfully unfolds this 
phenomenon. Again, the legal character of Israel's theocracy. First of all, he describes the reason for the theocracy. He says the chief end for which Israel has been created was not to teach the world lessons in political economy, but in the midst of a world of paganism to teach true religion. The significance of the unique organization of Israel can be rightly measured only by remembering that the theocracy typified nothing short of the perfected kingdom of God, the consummate state of heaven. In this ideal state, there will no longer be any place for the distinction between church and state. The former will have been absorbed, uh, will have absorbed the latter. And so uh, the, the, pre, the, the principal lesson of the theocracy, uh, Voss is saying, and uh, which ought to be clear, is to teach us uh, the principles of true religion. And in doing so, to cause us to anticipate the realities of heavenly life, where the kingdom of God is not only typified, as it is here, or not simply typified, but it is uh, brought into actual, solid, and perfected existence. But then Voss goes on to describe the function of the law in the theocracy, seeing the theocracy in this way as a typified heaven. As stated above, the abode of Israel, he says in Canaan, typified the heavenly perfected state of God's people. Under these circumstances, the ideal of absolute conformity to God's law of legal holiness had to be upheld. In other words, what we will find in heaven, uh, Voss is saying, and what Israel is causing us to anticipate, uh, Israel's not causing us to anticipate a perfectly just society, though we are able to draw out the general equity. But we get a sense of what it will look like where God's legal holiness is always upheld, where there is always justice, where there is never sin. That's what heaven will be like. But then thirdly, and certainly this will be an idea to unfold in sermons to come, Voss speaks of the gospel of the theocracy. In this legal character, uh, this this. Uh, the setting which had such a strong legal character. He says, we find that there was a real gospel under the theocracy. And where do we find it? Where do we find the gospel in the theocracy of Israel? We find it in the very laws we are considering. The very laws which dominated her existence as a nation. And so, with that being said, and uh, leaving those ideas to be unfolded in future sermons, I want to close with this question which occurs to us again as we consider the gospel in the setting in which law dominates. And my interest is with the phrase found in verse 7 of chapter 23. If you remember, I said we would come back to this. The Lord says, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. How can you read a phrase like that and not come back to it? Well, here we do so. God is, uh, first of all, stating his justice as seen in his unwillingness to justify the wicked, as we've already seen. That's actually a common refrain in scripture. You often find the Lord saying this. And it is, as we saw, just a simple statement of the principle of justice, that it would be wrong to acquit the wicked, just as it would be wrong to condemn the righteous or the innocent. But then, having, uh, having seen that statement, I, again, it's the Lord speaking, I will not justify the wicked. We say, wait a second. I'm not sure that quite sounds right. We naturally, on on account of such statements in the New Testament, where, for instance, we find Paul actually saying, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, I think it is, that God justifies the ungodly. Or I might just as easily uh, translate it, God justifies the wicked. 
That is actually what the gospel is. I, a sinner, God justifies. It was the whole point of the morning sermon. I might ask the question whether that statement and whether that arrangement is found in the New Testament and in the gospel represents any injustice on God's part. What is God doing? Is he overturning his justice? Is he obliterating it? Is he setting it aside and bringing in a new arrangement? In other words, does the gospel represent an affront on his law, on his commitment to justice, or perhaps an overturning or setting it aside? And the simple answer, you know, I was pondering this all week. How should I answer this question? But the answer is so obvious. The answer, which we will discover by our very acquaintance with this legal code, is no. No, it is not unjust for God to acquit the guilty. Not if he has a priest. This will become the all-important consideration. One which will soon dominate this very legal code. The place of the priest and the tabernacle and the sacrifices which equally belongs to the law and to the justice of the law, which the Lord is maintaining in Israel. The law of the Old Testament cannot be considered apart from this. You can't take the civil law and divorce it from the priestly laws. You miss the whole point of the theocracy if you do that. You have to always take them together as standing side by side and as being integrated into one another. And so it is the theocracy itself uh, above all that tells us that the priestly aspect is seamlessly tied into the justice of the civil laws. And what we discover in those very priestly laws and the functions of the priests outlined there is that there were legal provisions for remission and atonement. There was a way by which the, the guilty would be acquitted in a just way, which did not represent a perversion or an inversion of justice, but it represented, in fact, an expression and an application of the justice of God. The very justice that God is concerned to uphold when he says, I will not acquit the wicked, nor will I slay the innocent. And so this tells us, the priestly laws of the tabernacle, that God can justify the wicked if he has a priest. And especially, we discover, and as we considered in Hebrews if his priest is the very son of God, Jesus Christ. And so if you think in terms of God's cosmic courtroom, which is how I want to look at things, certainly in the book of Romans, the fact that we all have to stand before God on the last day and the standing which I have there on the last day as a guilty sinner, the law may very well declare that God will never let off and will never justify the guilty. That is certainly true. But that same law also says that the sin of the guilty might be atoned for by another, by a substitute, if God should, set, uh, should accept his sacrifice. And here again we see, well let me just say before I make the next statement, and God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. And so we see, and we'll find this in Romans, not antipathy, but harmony between the gospel and the law as upholding the same principles of justice and the same principles of law and righteousness that God in the gospel of his son, our great high priest, is not overturning, but exercising his justice in the justification of the ungodly, not because they're ungodly. May it never be, 
But again, because they stand in a saving relation with a priest whose sacrifice God accepts. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is what makes the gospel so lovely and wonderful and irrefutable. Because it has standing in the courtroom of God. Who will overturn the verdict of God now that Christ has been sacrificed? Romans chapter 8. Now that I can stand on that day with the priest. No one can. The gospel is irrefutable. No one can overturn it. No one can convince me otherwise. Now that God has given up his son. Because the gospel answers the very demands of the law I broke. It upholds the law. It establishes the law. Romans chapter 3 verse 31. It does not overturn the law. And it does so again, I say, through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so while it would be unjust for God to clear the guilty, there is no injustice seen in God doing so for those whose sin is paid for in full through the sacrifice found at the cross, the sacrifice for sin. On this very basis, we find and build our hope as Christian people. Christ has been crucified. I have been justified. No man can ever overturn now what God has done. And it is, the, it is uh, uh, this thought which we will have ample time to consider as we go on from here in sermons to come and in passages to come to consider those priestly laws of this legal code. Uh, but let us not see them in opposition or even standing beside, but as part of the very fabric of the legal code of the Israel uh, of the theocracy of Israel. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 129.